It's a great joy to introduce to some of you, but to reacquaint many of you with Pastor Zach Lutz. Uh, he is currently the pastor of the Trinity Presbyterian Church in Puerto Rico, part of a church planting um, effort, mission effort that was started by our denomination some years ago. Um, and just a few years ago, he became the senior pastor of that church. And so he's been ministering to the, there faithfully and effectively for some time. He's married to Margarita and uh, has uh, Joaquin and Alora as his two young children. And so it's really wonderful to have him come back. For those who aren't acquainted with him, Zach grew up here at Redeemer. Um, he came when he was probably seven or eight, maybe. Um, now, my wife and I got to meet him earlier than you all got to meet him because I was living in Wichita for two years working at a bank where his father, Kevin, who was a deacon at our church, he also worked there. We became friends, and then over time, um, I went, we went over to their house, and there was Zach probably at that time maybe three years old, and his brother Connor was just a year old. And so we uh, got struck a friendship up with the uh, Lutzes then. It's gone on to this day. A few years later, they moved to the Kansas City area, came to Redeemer. Zach went to our school, Westminster, at that time. And uh, just li literally watched him grow up and uh, see the Lord work in his life, call him to ministry. He went to train at Moody Bible Institute. He taught at HCA Bible for a couple years. Then he went to seminary at Covenant and then uh, to the mission field where he's now serving as pastor. So it's a real delight to see one of our young men called by the Lord, equipped to go and do this work. And I know many of you have been praying for the Lutzes in their ministry in Puerto Rico for some time. So it's a real treat to have him come and most importantly, to come and open up God's word for us that we might be edified and challenged and encouraged. Zach, welcome back. Thank you, Tony. Good morning, Redeemer. It is really good to be with you. As, as Tony mentioned, uh, I've been around for a long time, uh, but have been on hiatus for maybe some 13 or 14 years. I think 10 years ago is when my membership was transferred to another church. Uh, so I remember uh, before this building was built and before we were in the multi-purpose room, uh, all the way in the south building is where my, my journey started. We've just been steadily coming north over time. It is really a distinct honor, though, to be back in this beautiful building. Um, it, is, it is very special. Uh, and we're going to be taking a break through your sermon series in Genesis, and we're actually going to be jumping to Matthew. And I wanted to explain uh, why I'll be in Matthew chapter 2 reading about the wise men. So many of you probably know the story of the wise men. We usually tell it around Christmas. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this particular passage is because of the significance that it has in Puerto Rico. Uh, we don't celebrate it much in America anymore, but Epiphany is the day that they recognize the day that the wise men visited Jesus. And it comes 12 days after Christmas. Now there are some relics of this uh, of this in our culture with the 12 days of Christmas song. That's actually what that is signifying. But in Puerto Rico, Epiphany is so big that traditionally, children, you would not really get Christmas uh, presents on Christmas Day. You'd probably get your stocking and maybe there'd be some candy and some other stuff in there, but you'd actually open your presents on Epiphany 12 days later. So this is an important passage uh, that I've had to learn about and had the pleasure of learning about, uh, this uh, story told in, in, in various ways. Um, in Puerto Rico. And so I thought that it would be something apt to share here. But not just because it's only appropriate around Christmas, not just because uh, Puerto Ricans celebrate it huge, but because God's word speaks to us throughout whatever time that it speaks. And so I'd invite you now to look at God's word, which is Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, as I read it. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. If you would, please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these are your words given to us so that we may understand what great a gift we have in Christ Jesus. Father, we ask that you would not let us squander this gift, that you would not let us neglect this gift. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make your kingly rule over us clear as we bow our knees to you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illumine our understanding and empower our response, that we might not just be hearers of the word, but also doers. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to ask if you've ever experienced or been around or near an event that was just so great that it merited a response, like you just had to respond. Well, my wife, Margaret, and I, before we had kids, lived in Kansas City in 2015. And in 2015, there was an event in Kansas City that was so massive, so spectacular, that it warranted a major response. The Royals won the World Series. Now, in my wife and I's response to this, we failed to respond appropriately. We took a slow morning, taking our time to get ready, uh, and we thought to ourselves, like, well, we'll flip on the news and see how the party is going. And at that time, we realized the highways are already gridlocked. People are getting out of their cars and walking down the highway to go to the party. The buses that had been scheduled to take people downtown were already far overrun, and you would never get on those buses. And so as we sat there in front of the TV, we realized we're going to be stuck in our one-bedroom apartment in Olathe instead of celebrating this amazing party like we had planned to. This major event merited a major response. But Margaret and I were on the outs somewhat. The birth of Jesus Christ, next to his death and his resurrection, which we celebrate at Easter, are the major events of human history. They merit a major response. And in fact, if you were to read the story of Jesus' birth, there's almost no fanfare no celebration. The people who should have recognized him most were the ones that missed him. Margaret and I, in some sense, living in Kansas City, should have been some of the people who recognized the significance of the event the most. I had grown up here, and yet I missed the significance and missed out on the party. 
I often find that people who have grown up closest to Christianity, surrounded by the stories and the holidays, can often be at risk for most missing the significance of the events recorded in Scripture. Often it's the outsiders who respond most appropriately. Do you want to know one of the first groups of people to respond appropriately to Jesus was? These wise men. Foreigners, strangers, wise men from the east who showed us what an appropriate response to the greatest events in history. So from them today, as we examine their response, I hope that we can also learn how to respond to the greatest events in all of human history. And what we're going to learn from them comes in kind of three parts that will guide the sermon today. That we need to recognize the event, we need to follow after Jesus Christ, and we need to worship Jesus Christ. These are going to be our three points of our sermon for you note takers out there. Now, before I get to the three points, I do uh, kind of want to break some of our cultural perceptions of what these wise men or these magi were like, because we've got a lot of stories and songs, and so does Puerto Rico. They, they have even more, I, I would say, of, of what these wise men were like and what they did. The Bible nev- never says that they're kings, although we sing of these three kings of Orient. They appear to be quite wealthy, but it just says that they are wise, And although the word magi is probably where we get our English word for magic, they were probably not magicians either. They probably explored the line between astronomy and astrology, which were somewhat combined in the first century. The Bible doesn't say that there were three magi. It only says that there were three gifts. In all likelihood, there was an entourage of people. The star, although it may have risen in the east, definitely didn't stay in the east. Like some of our pictures show, it had to go to the west because they're from the east. They needed to go west. I think I'm pointing the wrong directions. I'm sorry if that's confusing. They weren't at the major manger scene. By this point, it says that they were in a house. And as we learn from later verses, it seems that Jesus may have been almost as old as two. Nevertheless, these wise men from the east, they had an appropriate response to the greatest event of all history. They recognized, they followed after and they worshiped. So first they recognized. This is the major thing that Margaret and I got wrong on that October day in Kansas City. We did not recognize the significance of the event that was unfolding before us. But these wise men from the east, they did, and that's actually shocking. And it should be shocking because these were men who were doing things they were not supposed to be doing. They were studying and divining the stars. They were uh, dividing them and learning from them. And the Bible actually condemns this. In Jeremiah 10, 2, it says not to learn the ways of the nations and be dismayed by the signs of the heavens like the nations are. In Isaiah 47, we'll describe those, as, uh, describe those who ponder and divide the heavens, the stars in the sky, as lost, those who weary God. The Old Testament describes the wise men as people who would have wearied God. And yet these men recognize the significance of the event. How is it that this happened? God condescended to them. God used what was significant to them to show them that something significant was happening. And the first thing that we can learn from this in our recognition that this is who God is. A God who condescends to us. A God who condescends to sinners, to pagans, to those with no known contact with his prophecies and promises. This is the nature of who God is. To make himself known to every tribe, tongue, and nation. But I want to be clear. Although God used a sign in the heavens to direct these men, he used, them, he used this sign to point them beyond their limited knowledge intimate, into intimate and personal knowledge with the word of God himself. 
I may not be able to understand every sign that God uses in this world. But what I do know is this. This is the most clear representation of who Jesus Christ is. I just, I don't know if you've thought about this ever, that God could have used some sort of heaven speak. He could have put things in the skies that you had to be smart enough and intelligent enough to discern and divide and understand and mystical enough and emotional enough to be able to uh, connect with all these things, but that's not necessarily how God did it. God spoke to us in words that we can understand so that the significance of the events unfolding within these pages might be absolutely clear to us. God's greatest sign, God's greatest message, God's greatest condescension to us is Jesus Christ himself. And I know that the only place we are sure to see him the clearest is revealed in Scripture. And so I ask, do you long to recognize Christ and his significance in Scripture? God has condescended to us here, speaking in words that we can understand, so that we might recognize the significance of the event Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that the Bible is just some other religious book. I'd encourage you not to make that mistake. Don't look at it as magic either, as if it can just kind of fall open to random passages. Although the Holy Spirit uses diverse signs, it's communication just like I'm talking to you now. (laughs) And God spoke to us clearly, saying, this is my beloved son. Trust in him. So the first part of a godly response to the greatest events of all history is to recognize their significance. But recognition alone isn't good enough. This will bring us to our second point. I'll let you in on a little secret. There are a lot of biblical scholars who know their Bibles really, really well. They know their Bibles better than I do. But they reject following after Jesus. A godly response to the greatest events means you can't just recognize the events. You must also follow after. And these wise men not only recognized that events were happening in the sky, but they also chose to follow after it. We can see that in verse 2, right? Not only did the sign happen in the heavens that we read about, but they chose to follow after it, to come and seek the king. Some commentators will say that they followed it up to or more than 1,000 miles, which in that day would have been many months of travel. And so I'd just like you to think about your own lives. And imagine taking many months off of your regular occupation to go travel to something that seems absolutely ludicrous to the rest of the people around you. (laughs) That's what these men did. Left behind businesses and occupations and spent it on a costly journey. For these wise men, they were sure that there was a king of the Jews that was born and that it was worth it to come see him, whatever the cost. That's what they said that they were there for in verse 2. But when they arrived at Jerusalem in the major city of the Jewish people, I think the wise men probably assumed that the Jewish people would be following after the same king that was born that they knew was there. Where is this king? Shouldn't you know too? But actually what we learn from this passage is we get three negative examples, three bad examples of of, of what it doesn't mean to follow Jesus. There's a lot of double negatives there. We get three examples of what it doesn't mean to follow Jesus. And so we're going to look at these three examples to learn how we ought to follow Jesus. So the first person, the first group of people we could look at was all of Jerusalem. And this is in verse 3. It says that King Herod was afraid and all Jerusalem with him. All of Jerusalem. Instead of being people who were rejoicing at the fulfillment of God's ancient promises and prophecies to his people, they were afraid. And not afraid of God, like the Bible says is good. They were afraid of lesser kings. 
I think many of us are more afraid of lesser kings than following the one true king. Kings of productivity, kings of judgment, kings of prestige and honor, kings of education. We're too afraid of lesser kings to follow after the true king. We might recognize Christianity as an important event. Christianity might intrigue us philosophically. We might like to debate obscure theological points. But when the rubber hits the road and we're asked to change our lives, I just don't know. That's a little too costly. In some sense, we get a little comfortable. Margaret and I could have experienced that amazing party in downtown Kansas City, but in some sense, we liked the comfort of our one-bedroom apartment in Olathe too much. To miss out on the joy there would be at the sporting event. And the joy of the celebration of the sporting event in downtown Kansas City for the Royals or for the Chiefs and the Super Bowl is nothing compared to the joy that is at the end of following Jesus. Look at verse 10. The wise men found exceeding joy following Jesus. But the people of Jerusalem, afraid of a lesser king, found fear. And so I ask you what your life tends to be marked more by. More by joy or more by fear? And I wonder if that has a lot to say about which kings you're following. First bad example of who not to follow, all of Jerusalem. There's a second bad example, and that's Herod. Again, verse 3, it says that he was troubled. But if you know the rest of the story, his trouble goes even further. Um, if you were to go to a, little, uh, a few verses past what we read today, Herod will be so protective of what he thinks he's earned, so afraid of a challenger to his throne, that he will order the murder of all the male children under two years old in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus will escape Herod's fury being warned by God. But if we look at Herod's fury, king of the Jews, it is absolutely irrational. And we learn something from Herod. After all, if it was God's plan, did he really think that he could thwart it? And if it wasn't God's plan, why be worried about it at all? You're one of the most powerful men in the land. Herod's fury is irrational. But what we learn from him is that not responding appropriately to Jesus is always irrational. Or maybe another way to say it, our sin is always irrational. To be sure, we try to rationalize it. It seems to make sense in the moment, but it's always irrational. We may not respond as violently as Herod, but our sin is always an irrational rebellion against Jesus' rule. Let us repent, turn from those wicked ways, and turn to follow Jesus. But there's one more group who didn't respond appropriately by following, and that's the chief priests and the scribes. They were assembled in verse 4, and by verse 6, they are quoting from the Old Testament prophet of Micah. I just want you to think about this. These are the religious heavyweights, you know, the pastors of the land. They're supposed to be the ones most excited about the fulfillment of the promises. And they stand up here and they hear somebody say that they're looking for a king of the Jews. They quote the very passage and do nothing. They don't even send like an intern to go with them to be like, hey, just go figure out if this is true. As one commentator stated, they were content to quote scripture and go home. I doubt many of us in the room have the tendency to respond like Herod in violence towards God. After all, we want to be pretty moral people. And we might have our kind of pet sins and we're working at them and we're, we hear that follow and we try to repent. But I think that many of us are apathetic about the news like the chief priests and scribes. 
We're content to recognize that events are happening and show up in this church building, but in some sense, we're content to quote scripture and go home unchanged. They should have followed the Magi. The first part of an appropriate response to such a great event as Christ's birth is to recognize that it's unfolding before your very eyes, but the second is to follow after and pursue him where he may be found. Now, the wise men they actually were able to seek the physical place where Jesus was. And I think that's what we would all want. We would love Jesus to be here on earth, right? We could go see him and talk to him and bow down and worship to him there. So how do we follow after Jesus? And the way that Jesus has organized his kingdom, it says that for us, our calling to follow Jesus means that we live a life that assumes his reign. Fighting back and confessing sin, repenting and laying hold of the means of grace, which if you don't know what those words mean, is taking hold of the Bible, the sacraments like the Lord's Supper and baptism and prayer. Laying aside our own pride and our own kingdom building and our own worries about our 401ks and the future and property values and working to build Christ's kingdom. There's a cost to following Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But there's a great joy to be found. Greater joy than you could ever experience in your own man-made kingdoms, whether it's a curated Instagram feed or the perfect house. Greater joy is found following after Jesus. We we ought not be apathetic towards his words and his commands towards us, but pursue him with fervor and passion so that we might be known as people who are marked by following Jesus. So this leads us to our last point. First, we have to recognize him, we have to follow, and lastly, we have to worship The wise men listened to King Herod and they went on their way. They followed the star. And when they found the house, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, verse 10. And in their joy, verse 11, they fell down and they worshiped. You see, following after Jesus actually results in us seeing him. And for us, that means we start seeing him at work everywhere in our world. Where we once questioned whether or not Jesus was working at all, when we start following his commands and seeing him change lives here and now in the world, we start to say, that's Jesus. And we fall down and we worship, for his, worship him for his glory, his majesty, his splendor, and his love. But what does this worship look like? What do these wise men do? When the wise men worshiped, it says that they opened up their treasures and they gave gifts to him at the end of verse 11. You know, we don't often talk about people having treasures, wealth maybe, gifts and talents, but not treasure. It kind of feels like we're talking about pirates or something. But I wonder if we can reclaim the word in this way. People that have something to treasure assume that it is excellent. But often to excel at something means that you have to work very hard at it. The treasures that you offer Jesus are often things that you have had to work very hard for. I've had friends that are chefs and they excel at their craft and they treasure it. And often their gift to others flow out of that. And so when they sit you down at their house for a meal, you get the benefit of their excellent hard work. I've had a similar experience with a sommelier. I know almost nothing about wines as it shows by how I pronounce that word. I think it's pronounced something different, right? Soma, soma, soma. And nobody knows? I don't know either. I'm sorry. I know, I know almost nothing about wines, and yet when someone who knows about wines shares them with me, I get to partake a little bit in their treasure. The same goes for artists, musicians, and bankers. They work hard to make their gifts excellent. And the wise men, I'm sure, worked hard at their trade to give excellent gifts in worship, excellencies fit for a king. 
So one key aspect of worshiping Jesus is working hard to give Jesus excellent gifts. Now, of course, one way we do this is by our tithes and offerings, which we just, we just did. But it goes much deeper than just your financial offerings. It includes all of you. All of your gifts, talents, callings, place in life. Everything is to be leveraged towards the king. Administrators, you administrate with fairness and equity, bringing Christ's kingdom to bear in your sphere of work, and you give this gift to your king. Teachers, you explain how marvelous God's works are, educating others on his majesty, creativity, and ingenuity, the depth and surprise of our world and how it reflects God's creativity. Artists, you represent and create beauty, offering to the king works that glorify, express, reveal God's goodness, love, judgment, salvation, and mystery. You give these gifts to your king. Parents, you multiply and fill the earth. You train up your children to recognize God's work in the world, and you raise others who praise his name. You give these gifts to your king. Business owners, you employ, manage, create, and leverage economies so that you might give these gifts to the king. And so the question might be asked, do your gifts really matter to the king? I mean, if he has everything, what could you possibly have to offer Jesus? You know, one bottle of myrrh, which our text says the the wise men gave to Jesus, could cost upwards of $10,000 in today's terms. $10,000. But what is $10,000 to the king of the universe? Could it really ever be meaningful to him? The Bible doesn't really tell us what happened with these gifts or what they were utilized for. And more important than knowing what they were utilized for, even for the Magi themselves, was knowing the one to whom they gave the gift. Because I'm sure that some in their entourage thought that it was awfully wasteful and maybe even a little bit risky to give $10,000 gifts to a two-year-old in a blue-collar family on the outskirts of Jerusalem. I bet you some of them probably thought, we're getting duped here more important than knowing what the purpose of their gift was, was knowing the one to whom it was given. You know, a little bit later in Jesus's life, there's a story about someone else who gives him an, a, a gift that, that his disciples and some others around him thought that was, it was wasteful. There was a woman who came in and poured an expensive bottle of perfume on Jesus's feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. And some around said, that's wasteful. But Jesus saw her, valued her, and valued her gift because it was offered in worship of him. Neither the wise men nor this woman probably knew the purpose of their gift, but in the story of this woman, Jesus actually gives us a peek for what this gift is used for in the king's economy. And he says, she's anointed me for my death. And even the disciples themselves couldn't even make sense of what he was talking about. Sometimes offering our gifts to Jesus seems wasteful. But the king will not waste anything. Jesus values our gifts, and he knows their value because we offer our gifts in worship. Our costly gifts are given in worship of him. Jesus knows their purpose and will not waste them. But again, I would say, you know, the uh, wise men, they had Jesus in front of them, and they could offer their gifts right there. And I think we want the same thing. (laughs) We would love to be able to offer our gifts directly to Jesus because there's a lot of questions about how our gifts are going to be used out and around the world as we give them to other people. So does Jesus tell us how we are supposed to give our gifts to him? And he does. 
He said, to those that are hungry, we feed. To those that are thirsty, we give drink. We welcome strangers and we clothe the naked. We visit those who are sick in prison. Jesus says that when he comes in judgment, he will surprise the world by saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus gave another example of how we can give good gifts to him, and he said it's going to be how you love one another. Jesus said, the world will know your love of me by how you love one another. How you give your excellent and costly gifts to one another. Of course, we cannot create food like Jesus did. We cannot miraculously heal people like Jesus did. And even our most excellent gifts pale in comparison to the Lord of the universe. And yet the Lord cherishes these gifts like a father cherishes something made by his children. My son, Joaquin, is four years old. And recently, a couple months ago, uh, you know, he's, he's learning to use scissors. And so he's, as he's using the scissors, he cuts this kind of crooked piece of paper uh, and then folds it. And he hands it to me and he says, Daddy, I made this for you. It is made with zero skill and zero grace. And I cherish it because my son made it for me. Jesus cherishes your gifts and worship because you are a child of the living God. Of course, in comparison to Jesus' gifts, they may lack skill or grace. They most certainly do. (laughs) But they are gifts made in honest worship and dedication to our Lord. So an appropriate response to the greatest events in history is to recognize, to follow after, and to worship. I think there's one more thing that we learn from the wise men in in closing. You know, when these gifts were given by a royal party, uh, often this is how it would work. A royal entourage would show up and they would give costly gifts to a new king. And then that court uh, and the king would give back a small gift to take with them so that they can go back to their homes and they can say, see, look here, I met the king of the universe. It appears that the wise men would give very costly gifts to Jesus, but that they would leave empty-handed. And I say it appears they left empty-handed because although the wise men gave Jesus costly gifts in worship, Jesus was the far more costly gift given to them. He just wasn't fully realized yet. These wise men's gifts uh, were not initiating relationship. They were in response to a relationship already started. God himself come to earth. And even as a two-year-old, he merited a great response. The greater gift wasn't given by the wise men that day. It was received by them that day. Jesus would go to die to rescue them from eternal separation from their God, to forgive them of their sins and give them his own righteousness. The wise men recognized the significance of not just the event of Jesus, Christ, of Jesus Christ's birth, but they followed after Jesus himself for the exceeding joy that was waiting for them at the end, and they worshiped giving their excellent gifts in response to receiving the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive, reconciliation to God himself. The most significant event in all of human history is that God came to us. The greatest gift in all of history is that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, redeemed us. And from the beginning of this story to the end is the story of how Jesus accomplishes that. And the beginning of the end to the, or the beginning to the end of this story is so that we might recognize what great a gift he is to us. That we might follow after him with all of our hearts, souls, mind, and strength. 
And then we might bow down and worship, offering our excellent gifts to the one and true king. Again, the ones who are most familiar with the story are often the ones most at risk of missing its significance. And so I'd ask you this morning, no matter how familiar, familiar you are with the story or how unfamiliar you are with the story, are you responding appropriately to the greatest events of all of human history? Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you did not stand far off in mystery, but you revealed yourself to us. And you revealed yourself to us most clearly by sending your Son. Lord Jesus, you condescended from a heavenly throne room to rescue us. That you might put your clothes and your rings on us so that we might be called children of the living God. Holy Spirit, you condescended to quicken our own spirits, to open our minds so that we might respond to the greatest event of all time. And I pray that all of us, no matter how familiar we are with the story or how unfamiliar, would faithfully respond to this event by recognizing, following after, and worshiping Jesus. Amen.